If you will, please open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Finally reached the end of the book. I started preaching this book two years ago. I was thinking to myself, like, it'd be really cool if I finished this in two years, and here we are. So please, 2 Peter chapter 3, and read along with me as I read to us God's word through the Apostle Peter, starting in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Often for those of you who are in high school or college and you have to write papers, the thing that I got drilled into me again and again and again by my parents and then by my college professors is in a paper, a good paper, Tell everyone what you're going to say, and then say it, and then close by saying it one more time. Tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then say it one more time. And you do well to remember this, because it's the, the best papers are always the ones that recapitulate themes, that repeat things, that summarize key moments. And that's exactly what Peter does right here at the end of this epistle. It's like in this closing, he's giving us snapshots of all of the teachings of the entire letter. In particular, last week we studied a one word in the last week's passage that Christians are to be marked by waiting. Waiting to see Jesus. And it's a worthy question of what does it look like to wait well? And that's exactly what Peter answers in this passage this morning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, truly you are our Father. And in Christ, truly we are your children. Lord, you have not left us as orphans. Lord, you have left us with the promise that your son indeed is going to come again, not in a humble way as he did before, in a lowly manger, in a stable. But Lord, Christ will come again on the heavens and the clouds with glory, and the whole world will know him. And Lord, we wait that day. Help us in this passage to teach us how to wait well. I ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you look with me at verse 14, we'll notice that Peter starts off this passage by hearkening back, therefore, to what he's already talked about. Uh, he, notice he says, these things by these things. I think he's talking about particularly the return of Jesus, which is what the entire third chapter of 2 Peter has been about. And we cannot, as a church, emphasize this point enough. We are not just existing to exist as a church. We are existing, waiting for our Savior to return for us. Let me give two passages. In John chapter 21, right at the end of the book of John, when Jesus is talking to Peter, he says this to him. uh, Talking about how the disciple John will will live to, to write the book of Revelation. Jesus said to him in verse 22, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So even there, Jesus is saying, I'm coming again. 
Or at the very end of the New Testament, in Revelation 22, verse 20, Christ says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. There are millions of these passages. Not millions. Tons of these passages. But Jesus is coming back. And this is not simply a mental exercise of assenting that we do. No, this is to be waiting eagerly. This is why Peter starts off and says, Beloved, one more time. As if he's trying to grab the hearts of this church to get them to realize the necessity of waiting well. And this passage, as I was studying it, I noticed it has four imperative words in it. And those are going to be the four points of this sermon. What does it mean to wait well? We have four aspects. Diligence and holiness. Consideration of the Lord's patience. Watchfulness for error. And growth and grace. So let's, let's look at the first one, which we find in verse 14. Diligence in holiness is a marker of waiting well. This word that Peter uses, diligent, is the same one. He uses it a lot in this book. In chapter 1, he said, Make every effort to supply your faith with good works. And then earlier, he talked about that we should be eager for the coming of Christ. And it's the same word. It's this idea of complete eagerness, almost excitement. Excitement should describe the Christian. And in particular, he says we should be diligent to be found by him, by Jesus, without spot or blemish and at peace. First of all, note with me the personal nature of this. Peter isn't just saying, be diligent to be holy. He could have said that. But he says, you will be found by Christ himself. This will happen by Jesus. He himself, when he comes again, will find each and every one of us. Of course, Christ is with us now in his spirit. And he sees everything that we do, which I often need reminding of. But on the last day, we will not see him by faith. We will see him by sight, in the flesh, as a person. It's as if, uh, as Dr. Campbell has preached on recently, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so this is very personal language. Jesus is saying, you must strive to be a holy Christian because when Jesus comes back, he will come to you. And don't you long deep down for him to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's almost like when I was, I've used a lot of illustrations of my parents. Um, I remember when my, my dad would go away on a trip, sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four weeks in the Air Force. And he always would tell us as children, he's saying, you obey your mother. You respect your mother because I'm coming back. And when he'd come back, eventually he'd ask us that question. And that was a motivation for living well. In particular, he says that our holiness should be described with this phrase. We should be, strive to be without spot or blemish. Those of you who know your Old Testament well, you should instantly come to mind. That sounds like a sacrifice. Without blemish? Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3, when it's talking, beginning this conversation of right sacrifices to the Lord, it says, you shall offer a male without blemish. And this language is repeated all through the Old Testament. Because Israel was meant to bring the best of their animals to their sacrifices. Not the runts. Not the leftovers. 
They were supposed to bring the best because that displayed a, a heart posture of thankfulness to the Lord. God has given us grace, and so we return with the best of our lives. And the New Testament applies the same language to Jesus himself as the perfect sacrifice. As Elder Brendel read in our Assurance of Pardon, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blot, without blemish or spot. So Jesus is the epitome of the perfect sacrifice. And even more interestingly, this phrase, without spot or blemish, is the exact opposite as Peter describes the false teachers. Because previously, if you flip over the page in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, verse 13, I believe. Yeah, in verse 13, he's talking about these false teachers and he's saying, They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. So he takes that same phrase and flips it for the Christian. The idea here of a blot or a blemish is, is like a stain on a garment. Have you ever done that? You have spaghetti when you're wearing your white shirt. Ah, it's a stain on the garment. Or an ugly growth. An obvious abnormality. Peter is saying this because he wants you and I to earnestly desire holiness as a Christian. We must stand out, in a sense, in the fact that we are blotless and without blemish. So what, what does this mean for you and I? Does this mean perfection? Clearly not. We're human. We're not Jesus. We sin, as Elder Brendel was telling us. But it doesn't mean nothing. So let's dive into this. I, I believe there's, there's two aspects to the being, without, uh, being spotless and blameless when Christ comes. First is an inward, second is an outward. So let's talk about the inward aspects. I, I believe we can follow this Old Testament metaphor and, and gain some insights from it. Remember that I said that Old Testament Israelites were called to bring the best of their flock to kill at the temple as a reminder for their forgiveness. The best, not the worst. And I think inwardly we could ask that question to ourselves. Do I give God the best of my heart? Does the Lord who saved you from eternal punishment, does he have the number one place in your mind and in your pondering? Do you meditate on the love of Jesus Christ for your soul? Or do you just take it for granted? Or how do you fight sin in your life? Do you declare war on the sins in your life? Or are you kind of at peace with them? Like you stay there, I'll stay here, I won't touch you, you don't touch me. Or do you give God the best of your mind? The first place in your thoughts. I really believe that the blotless and unblemished person has a heart that recognizes the depths of their sin. Much like David in Psalm 51. When he says, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is unlawful in your sight. So that, that's, that's inwardly what it looks like. For a Christian. Now, what about outwardly? Once again, not perfection. That is not what Peter is saying. But I do think he is saying that there should be an obvious mark of obedience and holiness to the Christian's life. A trajectory of looking more and more like Jesus. No one is 
perfected in a day, but Christians being born by the Spirit are changed from one degree of glory to the next. And I, I don't know about you, you all, but sometimes I, in my life as a Christian, I can get discouraged by thinking that no progress has been made. And this is the beauty of having friends. Beauty of having family members and fellow Christians to come along your side and encourage you with perhaps a perspective on your growth and holiness that you can't quite see. I know I've had that in my life where a friend can tell me things that I can't notice as an encouragement of the work of the Lord. But just some questions of outwardly, are you seeking to be spotless and without blemish? Are, are, there, are there overt sins in your life that you are hiding that you haven't told anyone? Do you have an issue with addiction or anger or frustration or depression that you've just kept inside and you've never shared with someone? Are there ongoing patterns of sin in your life that Jesus will find you with? And these, these are hard questions, but I ask these because these are the questions that the scriptures raise to get us to live obedient lives and to long to be found by Christ. And both of these terms, being found without blemish um, or spot, are summarized by the last phrase in this verse, at peace. It's a beautiful word, at peace. Um, I, I think John MacArthur is absolutely right when he talks about this as an inward peace when we think about God. Because all of those things I just talked about, pursuing, being without spot and blemish, that could be done while not being at peace inwardly. Right? You can have this mindset of, am I doing enough? Does God love me now? Like walking on eggshells shells around the Lord. But no, what Peter is saying is that the Christian should have an inward, unshakable peace that I am forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm going to fail, but I am free to seek to be obedient because he has saved me. Um, one of the a Christian band that I listened to when I was growing up was one called 10th Avenue North. I don't know if anyone here has ever heard of that. Maybe not. But they have one song that I loved listening to. It was called The Struggle. Um, I encourage anyone who likes that kind of stuff to listen to it. And it, the chorus of this song is amazing. It says, from a Christian perspective, Hallelujah, we are free to struggle. We're not struggling to be free. Your love bought us made us children, children drop your chains and sing, which I love because it's so true. It, it's not like as a Christian, you are pursuing being without spot or blemish because if you screw up once, God's going to drop you. No, you are free to, to fight your sin because even on your bad days, the cross covers you. That is a beautiful freedom that Peter talks about here. So the first aspect of waiting well is diligence and holiness. Diligence and holiness. The second one comes from the beginning of verse 15. Uh, consideration of the Lord's patience. Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And Peter mentioned this great patience, this long-suffering of God, a couple verses back, if you recall. Look, for me, look with me at verse 9. Of chapter 3, when Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, slowness but is patient toward you. What a, a beautiful truth that you and I so often forget. And, and may I remind you, this, this, is, 
This is deeply important to Peter. Just think about Peter's life. Do you remember the moment in the gospel story, the night Christ was crucified, or the night, sorry, the night he was taken to trial? And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, all of you will fall away from me. And Peter, just like the man that he is, he stands up and says, they may all fall away from you, but I never will. And Jesus predicts even Peter's unfaithfulness. And I love the Gospel of Luke, because only the Gospel of Luke says that the third time Peter denied Christ, it says, and the Lord looked at him. The Lord looked at him, and then Peter began to weep. I think the patience of God was something that wasn't abstract for Peter. It was something he contemplated every day. I think in that one glance, Peter realized, the Lord is being so patient with me. And notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, count God's patience as kindness. He doesn't say that. He says, count the Lord's patience as your salvation, as your eternal security. This perspective just makes me think of Psalm 143, the first two verses which say, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Here's a man who is acquainted with the fact that God is patient every day. It's really the fact, and this is something that every believer here, you need to wrestle with, the fact that the Lord waited to end all things for you to come to Christ is an act of profound patience. Waited for his church. It's a beautiful thing. For all the kids here, it's something that as you grow up, you are, you are slowly going to realize as you age just how patient your parents were with you. Happened with me. It's going to happen with you. And you'll look back and you'll be like, Hmm, wow, yeah, my dad definitely didn't react as he could have in that moment. And parents, it's the same thing. As you become parents, you realize more. You grow in this knowledge of patience. And may this be the same trend of us as Christians. May we constantly, as we read the scriptures, apprehend how patient the Lord is being with us. Not just some moments, but every moment. So it's the second aspect of waiting well is a constant comprehension of the patience of God. The third aspect is watchfulness in error, which is verse 15b through 17. Let me read them again for us because it's a long sentence. So read along with me. Just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul, also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless, and lawless people and lose your stability. There's, once again, it's a long, complex sentence, but we'll walk through it. But first of all, I couldn't help but use this illustration because it's just so well. What, when Marvel first started coming out with movies, what made Marvel awesome? It wasn't necessarily the fact that it was a superhero movie. We've seen those before. But what made it awesome was the end credit scenes. 
Because at the end of the movie, which was all about one person, all of a sudden you got this peek at this other person. You're like, ooh, it's connected. That's really cool. Growing up when the first phase of Marvel was awesome. And in a way, that's kind of what Peter's doing here. He's had this entire epistle talking about many different things. And then right at the end, he name drops another apostle, Paul. And we're like, yeah, I know that guy. It's really cool. So yeah, keep that excitement up as we dive into this. Because it's even more incredible when you think about how strained Peter's and Paul's relationship was at times. In the second chapter of Galatians, Paul tells this story of at one point when Peter, the great Peter, was in error. And he was refusing to interact with other Christians because of pseudo-moralistic reasons. And Paul stood up, it said he stood up in front of the entire congregation and he rebuked Peter to his face. That's hard. And this is after that. Which means Peter took that criticism, he realized he was in the wrong, and has the love and care to say to his brother Paul, he calls him beloved brother. So that's, this is a very cool unity that we see here. So I got two questions as we go into this, this, this part. What exactly is Peter saying, and then what can we learn from it? So, what exactly is he saying? He's, he's saying that Pete, Paul wrote about the same exact things. In essence, he's saying, don't take my word for it. Go read Paul. We're in complete agreement. There is no discrepancy between us. And if you read Paul's letters, he talks about the return of Christ in First and Second Thessalonians. He talks about false teachers a lot in First and Second Timothy. And every single one of his letters has calls for holiness. And those are all things that Peter has been teaching us about. Not only that, but he, he so highly values Paul that he says wisdom was given to him in these things. But he gives that with the caveat that some of Paul's letters can be hard to understand. Can I get an amen? Right? Can be hard to understand. And this is dangerous not just because it's hard to understand, but because some people think that it's easy to understand. And so they twist them. It's the same word. It honestly means torture. They torture the scriptures because they don't understand it. And he says that this, this danger comes about by the ignorant on the one hand and the unstable on the other. And I think in a lot of ways he's referencing back to the reality of false teachers. Remember chapter 2 verse 1 he says, False prophets arose among the people, Old Testament Israel, and there will also be false teachers among you. It's a promise. Thus the church must be watchful for error. This is what it means to wait well. Not just pursue holiness, not just consider the Lord's patience, but we have to be collectively watchful as a flock. There's a wonderful example of this. Um, a week and a half ago, one of my elders, after I preached my first sermon, just deliberately got breakfast with me to discuss a finer point of theology. It was very cordial. It was very fun, very enjoyable, very encouraging. And yet, he was being watchful of what is spoken from this pulpit. Watchful of what is expounded from the word of the Lord. And that, that's him being an excellent elder. Granted, this command is for all of us, but I think especially towards the elders of the church. So, that's broadly what Peter is saying. Now, the second question is, what do we learn from this? This is where things get very fun. What do we learn from this? We learn three truths about the Bible from this one, this one part. 
First of all, we learn the unity of Scripture. We learn, second of all, the difficulty of Scripture. But we also learn the perspicuity of Scripture. It's a hard word. I'll talk about it in a minute. So just hold on. So first of all, the unity of Scripture. The Scriptures are unified. They are in complete agreement with one another. Why? Because they come from the mind of God himself. They are inspired, word for word, by God himself. And our God is perfectly unified. Our God is one. He is a God of order, not of disorder. And this is why Peter was so confident to bring Paul up alongside himself and say, here, look, I'm not saying anything different than him. Our doctrines are completely linked. And not only this, look down at the words um, in verse 16, because um, Peter is saying that people twist Paul's words. And notice that little end of the sentence at the end of verse 16. He says, these people twist Paul's words as they do the other scriptures. Now, that's a very important little bit right there. Because what does this imply? This implies that Peter viewed Paul's writings as scripture. This word, graphe, scripture, is used 50, I think 52 times in the New Testament. And Every single time except for two, it is referring to the Old Testament Bible. And the other two times are referring to writings of the New Testament. Friends, this is, this is a beautiful aspect of continuity. That even in the first century, we have an example in the New Testament of a writer viewing someone else's writings as God's inspired word. I don't know how many of you have gotten into debates or discussions with people about the nature of the Bible. Um, I have, and it happens a lot, especially when you're conversing with unbelievers. And I've, the, an attack I've heard a lot is the people saying, well, you know, the, the Bible was just compiled by the church in the third century, right? A bunch of people got together and they're like, hey, we like these books, but not those. Boom, Bible, go. That's not true. That is not true. The scriptures were not authorized. The scriptures were recognized by the early church. And this is an example. Point people to this. That even Peter at the very beginning viewed Paul's writings as one in the same of God's holy and errant word. It's a little part of a sentence, but it's very, very important. Um... And this is why Dr. Campbell says this all the time. It's the best way to interpret the scriptures. Interpret the Bible with the Bible. Because it's unified, if you come across something and you're like, man, that doesn't make sense. Look up the cross-references. Ask a friend. Because the rest of the Bible will clarify those parts that seem unclear. So the first thing we learn is the unity of scripture. The second thing we learn from this is the difficulty of scripture. The difficulty of scripture. And Peter says this rather bluntly. You know, he loves Paul, but he does kind of throw him under the bus. He says, some things Paul says are hard to understand. Once again, can I get an amen? This might be a joy for some of you to hear. You're like, finally, somebody understands me. But there are many hard topics in the Bible. The character of God, his holiness, his justice and his mercy, the cross, church government. These are, these are difficult topics. And this is why God's church has always had pastors and teachers. It's true. In the Old Testament, the priests were meant to be those who teach the, taught the people of Israel about God. And, and, and even now, 
It is expedient for some to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer for the edification of the body. This is what Dr. Campbell is for you. Dr. Campbell is a man who has said no to probably a lot of money in the industry world and has said yes to devoting his life to the study of word and to prayer for the benefit of this flock. And that is a godly thing. And that has always marked the church of God. People who study the difficult parts of scripture, chew on it endlessly to be able to edify Christians, edify you. But notice this difficulty of scripture is also gives rise to twisted teachings by two groups of people, the ignorant and the unstable. I think by ignorant, um, Peter means those who are likely sincere at heart, long to be teachers, long to teach people about the Bible, but they simply do not know what they're talking about. And they need a lot of hand-holding, they need a lot of time before they're ready to do so. And then he says unstable. And these are people who may have a lot of knowledge, but their personal walk with the Lord is wanting. I believe this is talking about false teachers, but also those who simply don't know as much as they think they do. Oftentimes, the young, brash Christian who foolishly thinks he knows everything and the fledgling false teacher look very, very similar. This is kind of what Peter's saying. We have to be watchful for that as a church. This is why Paul, I think in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, do not be hasty in making somebody an elder. Why? Because it takes time. It takes time to figure out the genuineness of a heart. So aspects of scripture are difficult, and it is foolish to think that everyone should be teaching every single Bible study at every time. Which is something we have to wrestle with. And how, how do we deal with this? I think we need to be watchful. The elders of a church need to be careful about what is spoken, about what is taught. But also every single one of you. Um, and this is why I encourage everyone here. Ask questions. When something comes to your mind about the Lord, or about church, or about scriptures, and it raises a big question mark, ask. Ask questions. I personally believe that there is never a bad question that will come about if someone's reading the Bible. Because I've probably asked it before. Honestly, three times this week, I have met with Christians and fielded their hard questions, and I've been really edified by trying to answer them. So I encourage you, write down your questions. Ask them. Meet with your elder. Meet with someone you trust. And I say that because there have been a lot of people who have been burned by older, wiser Christians saying, never ask questions. And I don't think that's what Peter's teaching right here. I think he is teaching, we need to watch who's on the pulpit. I don't think he's teaching, never ask questions. Because in a lot of ways, I look at my spiritual journey, and I think I'm the product of questions handled rightly by godly men. So yes, scripture is difficult to understand, but here comes the word of encouragement as well. There's the difficulty in scripture, but also the perspicuity of scripture. Uh, Perspicuity basically means clear, which is kind of an oxymoron because it doesn't sound like a clear word, but that's what it means. So the scriptures are fundamentally clear. And we see this because Peter, despite the fact that some people twist the scriptures, he calls them in verse 17, that they're in error, which means this is not just a, hey, everyone's interpretation is valid. 
Peter is not saying, oh, you know, some people have this take, I just have this take, and we're both right. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there is a right understanding of the Bible. So perspicuity means clarity. This means that the scriptures are fundamentally clear. God made them. When they don't make sense, it's our fault, not his. And this also means, and this is the beautiful truth, in order for man to be saved, to understand the basic gospel of Jesus, he needs only the word of God and the Holy Spirit. The word of God and the Holy Spirit. I, I think that chapter 1 in the Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes this tension of the difficulty and the clarity of Scripture well. Let me read this for us. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly taught and opened in some places of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but also the unlearned, in due use of the ordinary means, may attain a sufficient understanding of them. Basically what that's saying, there are some things in Scripture that are hard. But the gospel of Jesus, what is necessary for you to reach eternal salvation, you can find for yourself in the Scriptures with the aid of the Holy Spirit. A seminary degree is not necessary to be a good Christian. Now to be a pastor, I would, I would say yes. But to be a faithful Christian? No. The scriptures with the light of the Holy Spirit are clear enough for the most unlearned man to grasp salvation through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This is good news. Why? Because you should read your Bible. You should read your Bible. I, I can't tell you how many people I have talked to who, when trying to read the scriptures, get discouraged because they're unclear and you're stumbling to, and trying to understand things about God. And I think this is encouragement to every single one of us. That do you believe in Christ? Are you a Christian? And if you say yes, that means his Holy Spirit dwells within you, which means you have the greatest commentator ever known. The greatest commentator. Ask him for, to guide you. Ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to help you to behold wondrous things out of God's word. So I encourage you, keep praying, keep reading, try to focus on what is clear and ask questions about what is not. God's word is food for your soul. Jesus himself said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Your soul needs to be fed by God's word. So waiting well means being watchful for error. But lastly, Waiting well is marked by growth in grace in verse 18. Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter is very much against a Christian being stagnant. This is very similar to the author of Hebrews when he talks about Take careful, brothers, lest you drift away from so great a salvation. No one is passively ever going to just start loving God more. No, if we're left to our own devices, we will drift, which is why Sundays like this are so important. I think, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, uh, explains it well. He says, Peter suggests that the only way to avoid falling in the Christian life is to advance. 
The only way to avoid slipping back is to go forward. There is no such thing as being static in the Christian life. This is what Peter means when he says, grow in grace. Grow, grow. Now, interestingly, this word is often used to describe people, you know? As young people grow up, that doesn't happen in a day. You don't become, a toddler doesn't become a teenager overnight. Thank goodness, right? Um, And neither does a Christian grow overnight. This is a gradual growth of the Lord edifying his people. Now, a question I was raised to me when I was reading this, does this mean that God's grace is grown in our lives? No, I don't think that's what it's saying. But I think our apprehension of that grace does grow. Our understanding of it. How, do we, how does our understanding of God's grace grow? Through our failures. Through our suffering. Um, one of the most dangerous prayers that I, I, I need to pray often is that the Lord would keep me humble. And that the Lord would um, make me know my sin. And I think I prayed that two weeks ago. Um, and ironically, this past Monday, as, as a part of me pursuing ordination, I had my first meeting with the Presbytery Committee. It's called the Candidates and Credentials. So it's basically I go and meet in all these old wise men who are pastors, and they ask me questions to discern whether or not I should go down the road of being a pastor. And I thought about it on Saturday and then completely forgot about it on Monday. And so the meeting was at 1 in Greenville, and 12.52 rolled around, and there I am, you know, reading the Bible at church. I think I actually was reading the Bible. And then Howard Cox called me and said, Jack, is this, am I at the right place in Greenville for the meeting? And I said, what meeting? Oh, wow. And I was 35 minutes late for my first meeting with the Presbytery. Talk about humbling, right? I don't know if any of you all have ever been there. Um, But the entire drive, so 35 minutes in the car, I was praying to the Lord, Lord, help me to own my sin so that I can own your grace. So often you and I, we try to distance ourselves from our faults to make us appear better, both in our sights and other people's sights. And I encourage you that as a Christian, you should do the opposite. Seek to own your faults, own your sin. Because when you own your sin, you own your need for the grace of Jesus. You own your sin so that you might own the grace of Christ. So this is often how the Lord grows us in grace, by giving us suffering, difficult times, and showing us our sin. But growth in grace is also matched with growth in knowledge, which as we talked before, study the scriptures. Don't be content with what you know. Seek to grow. And what a beautiful end to this letter. Peter ends by saying to him, Jesus, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Soli Deo Gloria. So it's written on the front of our church. It's the anthem of the, the Reformation. Is that God does all things for his own glory. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I pray that each one of us may come to the point where we realize that is the deepest longing of our souls. Because to look at this entire letter from the whole, why do we strive for holiness? So that Jesus may be glorified. Why do we, why do we fight, for false te- fight false teaching? So that Jesus may be glorified. Why do we eagerly wait well for Jesus to come back? So that he may be glorified in our waiting well. I pray that the glory of Christ 
may enrich our minds and fill our souls. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter. Lord, we thank you that you have not left your church in darkness. But Lord, you have given us a lamp, a light to guide our path in your holy scripture. Help us to behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, I I pray that you would teach us to wait well for our Savior to come back. I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.